Several years ago, this is well before 9-11 occurred, I was on a business trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On the way there, I had a stopover in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I checked in at the gate. I had a little bit of time to kill, so I ran down to the snack bar to grab a bite to eat. I grabbed a, a book uh, from the bookstore there. And um, as was my custom, I was kind of reading before the flight and uh, sitting there at the snack bar. And all of a sudden, I looked at my watch, and I realized that the plane was getting ready to leave. So I hurried back down to the uh, gate where I was at. I grabbed my boarding pass, kind of threw it at the ticket agent as I went by. And when I got on the plane, I noticed that the plane wasn't very full at all, but that someone was sitting in my seat. So I didn't really want to make a big deal about it. There was plenty of seats. So I sat down somewhere else, took out my book. I began to read, as was my custom. And uh, the uh, you know, flight attendants came on again and gave those pre-flight obligatory instructions. Now let me say at this point, I'm going to give you a word of advice. When the flight attendant is giving those obligatory, you know, routine pre-flight instructions, it's good to pay attention every once in a while to those. Because if I had been paying attention that day, I would have found out that I was boarding a flight actually for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And let me just confirm to you that they will not turn a plane around after it has taken off just because you are headed in the wrong direction. They were side by side, the gates were, and back in those days, they didn't really care which flight you got on. They just let you get on a flight. So I arrived at a destination that I had no intentions of going to. I was in a place I had not planned on. I never, ever expected in my wildest dreams to spend the night in Philadelphia. Now, that experience kind of demonstrates in part what happened to the prophet that we're going to talk about today. His name is Daniel. And I want to begin today by trying to give you a picture in your mind of Daniel. Imagine what one of the brightest and best of Israel would look like. In fact, we know a fair amount about him, uh, kind of what he would be like and look like, because in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, it kind of describes him. He was a family, uh, or excuse me, he was a member of a family of high social status. He was physically flawless, a strikingly handsome guy. If Robin were doing this message, she would tell you to picture the actor Henry Cavill, who played Superman. You know who I'm talking about, ladies, right? You know who I'm talking about, right? Okay. Robin thinks that Henry Cavill is one of the most strikingly handsome men in the world. Although I will tell you I saw him close up and he's a lot shorter than he appears on screen. So I want you to picture Henry Cavill only shorter and dumpier, okay? <laughs> Daniel was also bright, extremely intelligent. It says he was qualified to serve in the king's palace, which uh, means he had a lot of what we call today emotional intelligence. He had people smarts. But most importantly of all, Daniel was devoted to the God of Israel. And what I want you to know is that Daniel would have had all the dreams that young men in his day had. Back in Judah, his future would have been quite predictable. He would go to a great school. He would choose a field and go on to great success, probably have a great marriage, live in a nice home, raise a wonderful family, take a prominent place in the temple, 
He would do great things for God and God's people, but life did not turn out that way. There are two key phrases in the opening part of Daniel's story, and these two phrases describe a heartbreak, a world of heartbreak. The first one says, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it with his army. And the first heartbreak is this, that God, this God who had made this promise to a guy named Abraham, and he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people, and I'll give you a promised land and I'll make you a new community, and that new community will bless the entire world. That promise had sustained Israel century after century. Now, they had had a lot of ups and downs and been in bondage in Egypt, etc. They were delivered by Moses. They had wandered in the wilderness. And then they had reached kind of a peak under King Solomon and King David. And then there began this slow decline. This is very important to note. The kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom, Israel, which was destroyed, and a southern kingdom, Judah. And when Daniel was just a young man, a guy comes in a guy whose mom didn't like him very much because he's named Nebuchadnezzar. And with very little effort, he destroys what is left of God's uh, kingdom, his dream. The temple is a memory. The sacred contents of the temple are now in the temple of pagan gods. This meant that Daniel would come to adulthood and spend his entire life in a foreign land. His best service would be given to an alien king. He would lose his culture, his relationships. He would live and die in a place that he never wanted to be. That's the first heartbreak. Here's the second. The second key phrase is what Carol read about in the call to worship. It said, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. They even lose their names, and the name here is quite significant. Each of their names had a reference to God in it. For example, the E-L, the syllable L, Daniel, it, it, it meant uh, and stood for uh, God, Elohim. Or the syllable Yah, when it said Hananiah or Azariah, from another word for God called Yahweh. Their names reminded them that they belonged to God. And the new name that Nebuchadnezzar gives them is a way of saying, listen, guys, I'm your king now. You will give yourself to me. Babylon will, I, will describe and I, it will define your identity for the rest of your life. Now, this is very interesting to me because the name Daniel is quite interesting in that it means the Lord will judge. It's an awesome name if you think about it because it meant that through his whole life, every time Daniel had heard his name spoken, every time it was a reminder to him that the Lord will set things right, Daniel. His very name had been a promise to Israel. And now he is not Daniel anymore. So here's the question. It's kind of the question of the day for us. What do you do when life doesn't turn out like you planned? What happens when you end up in Babylon? And believe me, you will at some point. 
It could happen when a relationship or marriage that you had great dreams and hopes for ends, or it happens when vocational hopes that you had, high hopes, die. Maybe someone wounds you or betrays you deeply. Maybe it's when your kids grew up and they just keep coming back home over and over again. Maybe it's when you realize that a deep prayer that you've been praying for so long isn't going to be answered. This is when you find yourself in Babylon, cut off from the life that you wanted and you had planned on, and you realize, you know what, I may never get back home. It's when you say, how could God let this happen? Does he even notice me over here in Babylon? Now, this is a great question to ask today because there's been tons of research in the past few years involving people who have suffered major crises or trauma in their life. And these studies have involved everyone from POWs in war uh, to even the 52 hostages. Remember back when uh, the hostages were held back 14 months in Iran? Even people who are brave enough to go shopping on Black Friday, okay? And these studies find that a lot of people, a lot of people when they meet with trauma or crises or suffering, that they just give up. They just quit. But interesting enough, there are some people who don't just survive these traumatic events. They actually enlarge their capacity to handle problems and they persist and they endure and they become very creative. And at the end of it, they haven't just survived, they've actually thrived. There's a television show that's been on now. I believe it's like 17 years, which is hard to believe. It's called Survivor. I'm sure some of you guys may still watch that. I didn't even know it was still on. And they have a little motto. The motto is, who will outwit, outplay, and outlast. But what really marks the life of a resilient person is that they don't just survive challenges in life. They actually thrive in the midst of them. This is Daniel. This is the guy that we're going to talk about. I want to talk about three kind of episodes from his life that make him such a remarkable thriver, a spiritual thriver, and uncover why he had such an extraordinary life. We're just going to kind of walk through two or three of these. The first one is this, and it's right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. And it's that spiritual thrivers like Daniel resolve to honor their deepest values right up front. Here's what I mean by that. Daniel and people like him refuse to live as passive victims of circumstances beyond their control. They refuse to get tangled up in stuff that causes them to betray their deepest values. Now I'll tell you kind of a hinge verse in the book of Daniel, it's first chapter, verse 8. Up until verse 8, the Babylonians have been determining everything about Daniel and his life. Up to this point, they've been in the driver's seat. For example, Nebuchadnezzar determines that he's going to conquer Israel. He determines that he's going to cart off all the sacred objects from the temple. He determines that he's going to enroll all the citizens in his own little leadership academy. And the dean of the school determines their names, their identities, 
and even the menu that they will eat from the rest of their life. And they're going to eat some of the richest food you can possibly imagine from the king's table. And the easiest thing in the world for Daniel, now follow this, is that he could just be a passive victim of forces beyond his control and just say, well, I just got to do what I got to do. This is the point where most people just kind of send out invitations to their own pity party. But something really special happens in verse 8. The initiative in the story changes. And the writer shows this in some very colorful ways. Here's kind of a literal reading of verse 7. It said, The chief of staff determined new names for them. He determined Belshazzar for Daniel and so on for the other three guys. But then we get to verse 8, and here's what it says. But Daniel determined not to defile himself with rich food. The same verb gets repeated over and over and over, but now it's Daniel the captive, Daniel the slave, Daniel the prisoner. It's Daniel who makes a decision. And the writer uses a very strong word there, a word that can be translated. Daniel resolved in his heart he would honor God. So Daniel goes to kind of the chief official and he says to him, hey, everybody here is eating roast beef, eggs, cheese. Everybody here is on the Atkins diet and I'm a slim fast kind of guy. I don't want to eat this food. Now it doesn't say necessarily why it defiled him. It could have been, you know, ceremonial laws. It could have been maybe they were offering it to idols from the king's table It's not real clear why, but it is clear that Daniel said, I can't eat this food. This took enormous courage on Daniel's part. I mean, you didn't mess around with guys like Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel determined something. Daniel remembers his name. Daniel does not view himself as some little pawn, helpless in his circumstance. He shows tremendous courage. And then we'll see some wisdom here. Now, this is the way spiritual thrivers think. They say, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to do what it takes to make sure that I don't give in and just be a passive victim. So Daniel says, I got to do something here. So he goes to the dean of the school and he says, listen, I got to eat something else besides this rich food. And the dean of the school says, listen, Daniel, I'm sorry, I can't help you because If you don't eat the food, you start getting weak, you start looking bad, you start getting frail, then Nebuchadnezzar is going to have my head. So Daniel thinks to himself, this is what guys do that are spiritual thrivers. They think, well, that's not really a yes, that's not really a no. So let me go down the ladder a little bit. So Daniel goes down to the guard, kind of second man down. He says, listen, he says, let's try an experiment. He says, let me eat this food for 10 days, my food. And then you be the judge. If I'm weak, if I'm sick, if I'm frail, if I look pale, whatever, then fine. (laughs) This is an amazing courage by this guy. And in verse 16, the guard says that he's so impressed with what happens to Daniel and his friends that he actually takes steak away from everyone else and puts everyone on the veggie platter. He kind of elevates Daniel and realizes this guy knows what he's talking about. It only happened, though, friends, because when it looked like everything was lost, 
Daniel said, you know what? I'm not going to defile my God. I'm not going to get tangled up in anything that would cause me to, to betray my deep values. I got this from another person. I have no idea if it's true or not. But it's such a great story. It happened at a traffic light near the edge of town. A man gunned the engine of his huge Harley as he waited for the light to change. You would probably be tempted to stare at this guy and he would have enjoyed it. There was a filthy rag fastened around his head. From beneath it was matted, tangled gray hair spilling down his back. A leather jacket, images of skulls and bones leered from his clothing and his bare forearms. And his bike bore the emblem of a menacing black widow spider. As he waited at the light, an elderly man on a lime green moped pulled up beside him. The ringy-ding-ding of the moped was drowned out by the roaring thunder of a Harley. Boy, that's some motorcycle you've got there, the old man choked out. Mind if I take a closer look? Scowling from behind his oily beard, the biker gave him the once-over and said, if it turns your crank, old-timer, go ahead. The old man was a little far-sighted, but he wanted to take it all in, so he leaned his face right over the bike, examined every square inch of it. Looking up after a while, the old man grinned and said, you know, I bet that motorcycle goes fast. No sooner were the words out of his mouth, the light changed, and the biker thought he'd show that old geezer just how fast it could go. He gave it full throttle, and within 30 seconds, the speedometer read 120 miles an hour. Suddenly, he noticed a dot in his rearview mirror, a dot that kept growing larger and larger. Something was gaining on him. He slowed down to get a better look, and whatever the thing was flashed past him so fast he couldn't identify it. The thing disappeared over the horizon, whipped back around, and came straight back at him. As it zipped past, he recognized the rider. It was the old man on the lime green moped. How in the world could this be? The biker looked again in his rearview mirror. There it was again, that speck coming back his way, growing larger and larger. The biker tried to outrun it, but it just couldn't be done. It was a mute point, and in seconds, the moped slammed into the rear of the Harley. Both bikes were destroyed, and the impact could be heard for miles. The biker extricated himself from the tangled steel pretzel that once had been his beloved Harley. But the old man had fared even worse. He lay groaning beneath the black and smoking remnants of his moped. Even the hardened biker was moved with compassion for him. He knelt beside the old man's face and he softly asked him, he said, Is there anything I could do for you? The old man choked and coughed and replied, Yes. Could you please unhook my suspenders from your handlebars? <laughs> <laughs> the point is kind of vivid, isn't it? Who in the world would ever purposely hook your suspenders to something so dangerous? Yet here's what happens in life. We lean in for the closer look. And the world around us is mangled with the lives of men and women who never, ever intended to get hooked. I want to say this. Some of you are here today, and you see yourself as a helpless, passive victim of circumstances beyond your control. 
And God is calling you today to be a Daniel. Make a resolution in your heart. It will take courage. It will take a little wisdom. But it will be required, friends, if you are going to survive the Babylon in your life. There are so many people today, they live in Babylon and they say things like, you know, I would get to know God better or I would get involved in church or I would live with a positive attitude or I would build into this life of a neighbor or I would seize life by the throat and live it if only I weren't this, this, and this. If only life would slow down or if only I had a better life group leader, if only my season of life wasn't so demanding, if only other people hadn't done stupid stuff to me. Here's why it matters, friends. In the future, and this is really important, Daniel and his friends were going to have to make some very difficult decisions, way bigger decisions than what kind of food they were going to eat. At one point, they're going to be commanded to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar and the idols that he makes or be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they make the decision to say, no, we're not going to bow down. Daniel makes a decision and says, no, I'm not going to stop praying and you can throw me in the lion's den. But I promise you, I promise you, if they had not drawn a line in the sand here and said, we're not going to defile ourselves with the king's food, they would never have been able to face the lion's den or the fiery furnace. Here's the thing. If you've hooked to your suspenders to the wrong thing, you can resolve today. No more. I am going to honor God. I'm going to hand my life over to him, not to the passive circumstances I find myself in. That's the first thing. They honor their deepest values. Second thing, spiritual thrivers like Daniel's are committed to living in community with other people. When you get in Babylon, friends, you better have a community. It's a life and death deal. Daniel kind of formed his own life group. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe there were others. But they went through that school together. They would face the furnace one day together. They would one day rule together. In fact, this one little group of devoted followers of God would change the course of a nation. Julius Segal, one of the primary researchers about overcoming adversity, he writes this. He says, few captives suffered more than Vice Admiral James Stockdale. Get this. He served 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam. 2,700 days. On one occasion, his captors shackled his legs and arms and left him in a glaring sunshine. Three blistering days while guards beat him repeatedly to keep him from sleeping. After one particular beating, Stockdale heard a towel snapping out a code that the POWs had devised a message he would never, ever forget. It was five letters, G-B-U-J-S, God bless you, Jim Stockdale. Seagal writes that for these POWs, the briefest experience of community, of being connected, literally became the difference between life and death. 
You'll think I'm making this up, but you can read it in his book on page 13. He writes, if one man walked by another cell, he would drag his sandals in a particular code to send a message to him. Men would send messages to their comrades through the noises they made shaking out their blankets, belching, snoring, blowing their noses, or bodily noises that I will not name but are mastered normally by 10-year-old boys. This is so ironic. Where, where community is difficult, where it's hard, people will move heaven and earth and risk their very lives just to get a little moment of it. And when it is readily available to us, we often don't even have the time or the energy to pursue it. Deep friendship, friends, spiritual community, they do not come easy. You will have to fight for them. One of the questions I ask people now when they struggle, when they're having a problem, when they're confused, don't know what to do, I ask them, are you in a community? Are you part of even a small little band of trusted friends that will help you and support you and pray for you and give you wisdom? And almost always they will say no, or I used to be, or I tried to do that. And you have to keep trying, friends. Let me tell you the disease that is most rampant in Babylon, by far. The disease that is most rampant is called loneliness. And unless you fight it at its root, it will never go away. And at the root of loneliness is a lack of spiritual connectedness with other people who love you and who love God. So you have to make it a priority like Daniel and his friends did. They never would have thrived Thrive. They never would have made it without a group. And we need to be tapping out the code, snapping out the code, doing whatever we can for anyone here. If you see someone hurting, if you see someone outside the circle, if you see someone who is drifting, you need to go to them and snap out the code that says, you matter. I'm glad you're here. Come and be my friend. It's so important to thrive. Last one, and we'll close with this. The last thing that Daniel had as a spiritual thriver was he had the ability to remember that his life, especially his suffering, still had meaning and purpose in the eyes of God. Now, it's a very interesting thing here. Researchers have said that the factor that causes most people to give up is not when their suffering gets more intense. It's when they feel like their suffering has no meaning or purpose behind it. Isn't that interesting? It's not the intensity of suffering. It's the meaninglessness of suffering. Researchers, again, study this kind of stuff, and they found that suicide notes rarely speak of failing health rarely speak of rejection or finances. They say things like there's just no point in going on. See, so here's what Daniel was about to discover. Daniel was about to discover that in Babylon, he may have a different name. He may end up in a different place. But he was about to discover that there was somebody at work in Babylon that he never dreamed would ever show up there. 
There's one character in the story of Daniel and his friends and Nebuchadnezzar that we need to look at. Let me just read a couple scriptures and see if you can tell me. See if you can find the character that keeps coming up. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Verse 2. And God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now who's the character that keeps coming up? God. The writer of Daniel is convinced that God is at work right from the start. He's convinced that even the defeat of Judah and the loss of the temple that looked so tragic was not just a random, meaningless event. It was not like God had fallen asleep or God had broken his promise. God was up to something in Babylon, even in this place of suffering. Here's the crazy part. God is crazy it may seem, even love Babylon. God, as it turns out, even cares about this crusty old guy named Nebuchadnezzar. God sees something in Nebuchadnezzar. And what I want you to know is, wherever you are today, if you're in Babylon or headed that direction, you need to know that someone else is going to be there. I want to read you a story, a story kind of like what happens when you end up in Babylon a lot longer than you ever thought you would. It's written by a young man who visited a woman in a convalescent hospital when he was back in college. And I want you to listen closely to it because at the end of it, I want to tell you about the guy who actually wrote this. This is what he writes. He says, the state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place at all. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile, helpless, and lonely people waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside and smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never, ever wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief because it's not the kind of place you ever get used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had never visited before, looking in vain for a few people who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or onto wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. And as I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. A large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek and had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was later told that when the nurses arrived, new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that they could stand the sight of her, they could stand anything. I also later learned that this woman was 89 years old, and she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. 
I don't even know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people. I saw in that hallway that day, I saw her in the hallway that day, and I put a flower in her hand, and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held up the flower to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, although somewhat garbled, she spoke with an obvious, clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't even see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and I learned about her history She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with her only mother until her mom died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent home. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker, constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer. Her three roommates were all human vegetables. They screamed occasionally but never talked. They often sold their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on the weekends when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few years, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. On some days, I would read to her the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage word for word from memory. Other days I would take a book of hymns and sing with her and she'd know all the words of all the old songs. And for Mabel, these were not exercises in memory. She would just stop often in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics or some particular relevant situation in her life. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain syllables or lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the stuff she would say. And he ends with this, a story on one scrap of paper. He says, during a hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed pulled in so many directions. And then the question occurred to me, I wonder what Mabel has to think about. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even knowing if it's day or night outside. So I went to her and I asked her, I said, Mabel, what do you think about when you live here? She said, you know, mostly I think about my Jesus. I just sit here and think about him. The author says, I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty of me thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I said, what do you think about Jesus, Mabel? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, and this is what she said. She said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind of people who's mostly satisfied Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned. But I don't really care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me.
And then Mabel began to sing this old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No one other can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. I want you to know, friends, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may be and seem, a human being really lived like this. The author says, I know her. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without any explanation of why in the world was this happening. She lay there and she sang hymns and I asked myself, how could she do it? And the answer, I think, is that Mabel has something that you and I may not have. I think this is so powerful. He says, Mabel had power. (laughs) Lying there in that bed, unable to move or see or hear, or talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Here's what I want you to know about this story. It was written several years ago by a man who at that time was very young, a brilliant guy, good-looking, gifted leader. He devoted, like Daniel, his life to serving God. And through a complex set of circumstances, he ended up in life losing his marriage, his job, and his career. He lived for his only child, a beautiful little girl. She was devoted to her daddy. And when she was nine years old on vacation with some relatives, they were taking a carriage ride, and the horses that were pulling that carriage reared up. And in a very freak accident, as they went across this little stream, this little brook, she fell in and she drowned. And this man, this man who knew Mabel, When she was old and suffering, he ended up in Babylon 25 years later. Life did not turn out the way he planned. And the question is, and it's our question, gang, is will we survive or will we thrive? I'll say this to you. Mabel's story is done. Her race is over. but yours and mine is not. So here's what you need to know. God was with Daniel. And in what seemed like to be the most God-forsaken place on earth, he became the highest advisor to the most powerful king on the face of the earth. And God was with Mabel, this 89-year woman who died alone and unknown in an obscure little hospital bed. But today, thousands of people all over the world know her name and her story. And I'll say this as clearly as I can. And then there's you and me. And God is with us. Whatever Babylon you find yourself in. And this world will try to give you a different name. Just like it did Daniel. But God knows your real name, friends. And he wants to help you in your Babylon.